Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Jordana Levine, and you're listening to the Inspired Table podcast. Each week, you'll be led down an inspired path of curiosity as I chat to some of my favorite soul-centered folk about the things that inspire me daily in the hope that some of that juicy inspiration will rub off on you. So pour yourself your favorite cuppa and take a seat at my table. I promise you'll leave happier, healthier, and bursting with inspiration. How are you going? Um, it's been a couple of weeks since I got an episode of the podcast up and to be completely honest with you, um, I, I'd lost a bit of steam for it and um, it was only after having this particular conversation that you're going to hear today that I got my mojo back. Um, it wasn't because I hadn't had you know, stimulating conversation with past guests. But, you know, podcasts are a funny thing. You put all this time and effort into it and it's one of those things that you can't really see the results of. And there's no um, immediate profit made from it. But the amount of emails and the amount of conversations I've had over the last few weeks with people saying how much they get out of this show and how much they appreciate that show, this show has really kind of given me the boost I needed to get back on board. So I am back. I've got some wonderful conversations coming out. And this one today is particularly exciting. And I think, (laughs) I think What's great about it is that it surprised me because the subject matter isn't all that thrilling. Um, But, you know, the stuff that I learned from this conversation and the things that you're going to learn, they're they're fascinating. And basically, I'm talking to uh, Sheridan Kennedy from Kyala Pure Foods. And Kyala look after um, grain and flour production. They're an organic company. And so today we talk about, um, grain consumption, grain production, um, the importance of healthy soil, um, the importance of grains in our diet and some of the controversies surrounded with that. Um, which look, I don't even know if that little rundowns made it sound exciting to you, but please listen, because (laughs) I found this conversation fascinating. Um, and I think that there is so much controversy about grains and a lot of people, especially in the wellness, um, in the wellness circles have eliminated them completely from their diets. And I, I really think that there is room for them on our plate. So I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I did. And um, please look forward to some amazing interviews coming in the next few weeks. I'm 
so conscious of the foods that I eat and where they come from and all the rest of it. And I just realized only once we started talking about doing this interview that I've never really considered the grains. The grains are always just like, you know, that subpar part of the meal or... Yeah, yes. Or, or the ingredient in the pantry. The accessory. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. But they're so important, aren't they? Yeah, oh, absolutely. And I think particularly if you want, um, if you if you still want the grain to have the nutritional element that it's capable of having, um, mm. not simply be, you know, something that holds up the sauce or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely important, yeah. And, and people talk a lot about the difference when it comes to baking stuff, um, I don't know if you're a baker as well. I know you make is it the doses, isn't it? That you yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I'm famous for my doses. No, I do make a lot of doses, um, and that's why I love the chickpea flour so much. But I mean, baking for me, I, I do love baking, and I do quite a lot of recipe development in baking. But it is a it is a science, mm. and I'm not very good at measuring things. <laughs> no. I'm not. <laughs> in fact, in the um, in the Australian, um, you know, the colour supplement that they do on the weekends, last weekend I noticed this woman made a cake and it was really cool the way she made it. She had, in the, in the recipe section, she's saying, you know, you start with I think it was two eggs or four eggs maybe and then you measure everything else in proportion to the weight of those eggs. Oh. And I thought, wow, I like that. I mean, a lot of people, yeah, a lot of people wouldn't be able to handle it. Oh, I don't know how many cups. No, but it makes sense because, you know, you say to someone two eggs and the size of eggs varies so much. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I I brought some eggs home. My dad's got a farm um, in the Southern Highlands and his chickens are just laying so many eggs at the moment. And I brought (laughs) a whole carton back, but they were all different sizes. Oh, yes, of course, because it depends on the chicken and, yeah. the chicken and blah, blah, blah. Yeah, and that's why Sunny Queen or whoever, you know, you buy the 600 gram, you buy the 700. Yeah, yeah, and they're all the same size. Oh, that's scary. Absolutely, actually. yes. Um, so do you want to tell me a little bit, is it Kayala? Is that Kayala, Kayala. yeah. I would say to people, Kai as in hi. Kai. Oh, yeah, that's good, Kai, <laughs> Ella. Um, can you tell me a little bit about, like, the company itself and how it started, how long it's been around? Okay, well, it's been around more than we, we celebrated twenty-five years about three years ago, 80, 88. So we're coming up for you know nearly thirty years, and um, my it's my brother's company, and he's owned it for about ten of those years, and it started in the eighties, back when organics was kind of you know real hippie, and yeah. no one knew anything about it, and <laughs> everyone thought you were a bit weird, and this fellow was uh, growing grain and he decided just to build himself a mill and mill his own grain because, you know, it was difficult to find a mill that would take small quantities of organic grain and mill it because you have to have clean down processes and obviously there can't be contamination between conventional product and organic product. That's part of the certification process. And so he just built his own mill and... um, and grew it from there. And so the products were really quite well known in the organic world when my brother bought it 10 years ago. And um, he's really been focusing on, um, we don't have a huge retail presence, but what's interesting is that we do sell to a lot of companies who private have private label bagging. So, you know, a lot of companies like um, 
I mean, some in, in examples might be uh, off the top of my head, um, My Organics or, you know, there's a lot of labels that have appeared on the shelves. Yeah. The Honest to Goodness. Those oh, kind okay, of companies yeah. are all bagging from their distributors. So they're ba- buying in the product, a variety of products into a warehouse and then bagging them in their own label. So our product does end up in a lot of those labels. Uh, but certainly, you know, 20 years ago, we were one of the few grains on the shelf. Um, there's other, some other famous ones like four-leaf milling has been around for a long time. Whole grain milling also supply a lot of bakers. But, yeah, mostly now our main business is artisan bakery because that's just taken off, you know, they're just everywhere, artisan bakers. And um, I love eating real bread. <laughs> yes, me too. I was just talking about it the other day with someone actually, how I remember, I mean, it must have been, it couldn't have been that long ago. It must have been like early 2000s when Artisan was just sort of coming into the forefront and all of a sudden we were just eating this like delicious bread. It, it, it's sort of like it felt like it came out of nowhere. <laughs> it's been around for <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. It snuck up on us, didn't it? It was kind of yeah. like, and yeah, I can't remember life without decent bread now. But I mean, neither. But there was a time. There was a time before decent bread. <laughs> we had to buy it in plastic. Ah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so you're su- you're supplying big. Um, yeah, it's artisan uh, bakers. Yeah, and I yeah. mean, obviously, it's an organic product. So generally, we supply to artisan bakers who who bake organic bread. But what is interesting too is to what degree people find the organic flour the bakers find organic flour performs better. Mm. Um, And there's been a real shortage of organic flour this year, which has been pretty challenging for all concerned because um, not enough grown, you know, some bad droughts, that kind of stuff. So that's always a challenge in anything to do with agriculture and um, especially grains. Yeah. You will have this problem there's a dry year. Uh, Then... um, you know, it's tough for everybody. Yeah. So does that mean that not all grains then are harvested from Australia? Yeah. What tends to happen is that um, if we can't get it in Australia, we will take the option of importing it just to make sure that people still have it, you know, can still rely on us for a supply. Mm. So it's, you know, you did, we have to do this kind of juggling act between, you know, obviously we want to satisfy our customers and, but a lot of people want to be buying Australian product and it's not always possible because, you know, in the, when there's a bad season, it affects like the last the last bad season, this one that's fortunately there's been a lot of rain in the last few months, which is fantastic. But last year was so tough on so many areas through eastern Australia that, um, you know, was a real struggle for lots of farmers and, you um, huge challenge actually for anyone who works in agriculture to work with seasons I grew up in the country and so you know I know firsthand that whole experience bad years good years you know it's it's that whole boom bust scenario and you've just got to you've just got to function in a way that you can can be ready for those times when it's when it when you when it's tight and you're not going to have enough so that's you know that's the art of being a good farmer really absolutely so does that mean that you have um say a selection of 
organic farms that you can rely on if it comes to a time where you need to import grain? Uh, you mean organic farms overseas? Yeah. Ten, what tends to happen is that we have to buy, when we buy overseas, we have to buy through distributors overseas rather than yeah. directly to Good. farmers. Yeah. So um, that's kind of the most cost-effective way to do it as well as, you know, not having to go and source individual farmers who might not have, might have sold their product to someone else. So we'll have reliable distributors that we might call on. Um, and, for example, one example is our rolled oats, which people love. Uh, and what, what happened was a few years ago there was a really bad season in the rolled oat situation. It went down the gurgler. And so we found um, some, we sourced some from Finland. And then what we discovered is that everyone just was raving about these Finnish oats. Oh. And um, the truth of the matter is that in Finland they have really long daylight hours in summer when the oats yes. are growing. Something like 15, no, it's more than that. It's yeah. Uh, yeah. Huge. It's like anyway. 20 hours or something. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. And as a consequence, the plants grow really, you know, with lots of nutrition and, re and really well and very quickly. And so it's just perfect for producing a particularly high quality oat. So we've just made the decision now that we're, our rolled oats are always going to be finished. And some people, you know, a lot of customers have a lot of, have you know, they struggle with that and they go, well, mm. support Australian Oats. And it's a tough call. Um, but sometimes, you know, you have to sort of say, okay, all right, so there's food mile issues, um, there's local grown issues, there's quality issues. And there's if you're in the food business, then you balance all of this. Like no one's going to stop importing French cheese, for example. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> Just because we have some great, Camembert in Australia, you know, so yeah. it's always, and I guess, you know, it is a toss up as to how we want to look at that. And, you know, we're really aware of the local food movement. And obviously, it's much more cost effective if we can source um, our grains as locally as possible. Yeah. Um, but ironically enough, we're smack bang in the middle of the Darling Downs uh, outside Toowoomba. And it, it, well, it's kind of sad really, but vast quantities of that really beautiful soil is not organic. It's all conventionally grown stuff. So, uh, Okay, I want to talk to you more about that because I think it's quite an interesting topic. So let's just kind of rewind a little bit. Why do you think that it's so important that we are eating organic grains? Okay, a number of reasons. Obviously, um, grains like vegetables are pretty heavily... Um, covered with pesticides during the growing process because weeds are a huge issue um, and other pests like um, not so much in uh, certain grains are susceptible to certain kinds of insect pests okay. uh, things like corn and maize are a bit more susceptible and and it's insects that eat leaves and insects that eat roots and you know the whole spectrum of, of pests and then of course there's weeds and weeds are problematic because they'll compete for nutrition but also when you harvest a crop if you've got a lot of weeds in it then you've got to then get the weeds out before obviously you don't want um you know your your wheat flour with a bunch of weeds in it yeah. you know? so you've got to extract those somehow and, and for some organic farmers that means chipping out weeds you know good old-fashioned get out the hoe and go down the rows and chip out the weeds which is pretty work intensive. Mm. However, in the long term, I think there are a number of reasons why organic is much better. And 
And certainly um, the pesticide, the chemical issue is huge. And the other things are generally, and there's some argy-bargy around this, but generally the nutritional levels are better because farmers take care of their soils uh, rather than just dousing them in fertiliser in order to get the yield out of them. Yes. And um, I th also think, you know, there are other sustainability things. Biodiversity is important, so you'll encourage certain insects uh, who, are who, who prey on your um, pests so you, or you'll encourage other types of um, animals, small animals or whatever that will support a kind of an ecosystem around your farm so that it, the op in, an, in an organic situation, optimally, um, you shouldn't, you really, you're really aiming to support the plant growth through the ecosystem first, and then if you end up having a pest issue, then you'll you, you, there are organic inputs that you can use for pest issues that are naturally occurring chemicals like pyrethrum and that kind of thing. Okay. Uh, so there are you know there are inputs that you're allowed to have organically certified imports if you have pest issues. But the first place to start is to make sure you take care of your soil health and your ecosystem around your farm in order to make sure that the pests should take care of themselves. You know, there's all this stuff about life cycle of, of worms and moths and blah, blah, blah that I really don't know much about. But, <laughs> <laughs> oh, but I do understand that, you know, a good organic farm will think through that sort of stuff. And you'll have things like you'll have sheep and they'll eat the weeds in the crop or you'll do things like you'll have um, nitrogen fixing crops like chickpeas are great as nitrogen fixing crops and they tend to be grown uh, at the time when there's no um, other something like a wheat or barley or or those kind of crops will be grown around this time of year sort of through summer through sort of winter and harvested at the beginning of summer and chickpeas will be growing through the summer season and they fix nitrogen into the soil. So there's all of these regenerative processes. And, sorry. No, I was just going to say, so, I mean, it goes it goes beyond it just being better for us. It's, it's better for the environment too. Absolutely, yeah. And there's some studies that, uh, that, that look at the, the fact that if we use regenerative agricultural practices, then we can um, sequester the CO2 that we are now producing can be actually sequestered into the soil itself. So there's actually a whole lot of benefits at that level uh, as well, uh, you know, with the whole climate change issue. So um, I know that we had discussed in the past a little bit about um, the health of the soil and the fact that there are um, micro microbes. Yes, is that right? Yep, growing in the soil. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Well, I think what I get really excited about when it comes to this is that it actually reflects. You know, we'd have to have been living under a rock if we hadn't heard of the human microbiome in the last three years. You know, this it's exploded across all of the medical health nutritional um, channels. How important the, the our gut microbes are yeah. for our health yeah. and what's fascinating is that the soil has a similar um, microbial um, how, would, how would I put it uh, it's a system the, the microbial system in the soil actually functions in a really similar way to okay. our guts our gut microbiome for example it helps the plants immunity 
against certain pests and diseases. There's some fascinating research that looks at how certain types uh, of, of, like for example, there's a particular pest that comes in wheat that's a root worm pest. And when the pest attacks the roots of the plant, the plant emits these um, uh, nutrients basically that attract certain bacteria and those bacteria all come along and they attach themselves to the roots and they start eating up the, um, the, the nutrients and as they multiply they block the fungi that's harming the roots so they act like a defense mechanism for the plant so that in the same way that our guts have all kinds of fascinating connection to our immune system so the microbes in the soil also help all plants um, develop immunity to pests. Wow. Okay. So it's it's a healthy soil can become its own natural pesticide. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, and and awesome. you know, obviously, failing certain types of other climatic conditions that can affect um, whether certain pests are, are are prevalent at the time, for example, uh, but. Generally, if you if you work on your soil health, and um, and and the kind of the general pest ecosystem around your or predator ecosystem around your plant life, then yeah, yeah, the idea is that in an in an, in ideal conditions, yeah, that that's all you need to produce great food. I love that. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, yeah, it's very exciting stuff and we've completely forgotten it in the modern industrial ag age because, you know, the green revolution of the, I think, 1950s, 1960s, um, pesticides, fertilisers, you know, large-scale production, let's plant thousands and thousands of hectares to monocrops, you know, let's feed the world with with increasing yields of Mm. plants. That's worked. Certainly, we've increased the amount of food we've produced in the last 60 years, but it's had a really detrimental effect on our soil health and, and the health of humans who are eating that food and who are growing that food. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, on that note, there is a bit of controversy around grain production, but in particular, grain consumption. Yes, and especially what in the last maybe like decade as the paleo movements come through and, um, you know, the low carb movement. So, you know, as somebody who works in this industry, what what do you say in defense of grains? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's very interesting that I, I've kind of looked into this a little bit and I think there's a few things. I think one of the major issues we're facing is that we are living in an increasingly toxic environment and our foods, conventional foods, are doused in quantities of toxic chemicals. Yeah. Uh, and you probably already know or would have heard about Roundup and glyphosate and how it's used to dry down certain um, uh, crops. No. And Can you tell us a little bit about that? Okay. Well, you know, the world's most famous um, herbicide <laughs> and actually the most used herbicide huge, been huge and that's because it's been, it has created this perception of being very safe because it only attacks bacteria and an enzymatic pathway in bacteria so apparently it's fine for everybody except for bacteria which is deeply ironic considering Mm. now we find out that we need bacteria in our guts and in the soils 
and and what's happened over a long time is that because it's been perceived as safe for for agricultural workers and for people who are eating it, it's been used particularly in Europe and the States uh, to dry out crops so that they are ready for harvest much faster So because it, it kills the plant. How it works is that it kills the plant and when the, the crop is dry, that's when you harvest it. Now, while in Australia it's not used on wheat, it is used on legumes, conventional legumes. So, you know, that's of a concern, particularly if you like your chickpea flour. <laughs> and the, the short of it is that it's a, it's just taken over the, the pesticide world to such a degree that there's been no recent um, uh, developments, innovations in pesticide for the last 20 years. Now, I don't think we should be using pesticides. However, um, what is interesting is that glyphosate has been so uh, so useful and so practical uh, that it's not just um, you know it's used it's also used to spray weeds before you plant as well as spray the crop to dry it out and there's been there's no other alternatives to it now which is why there's so much resistance to that recent discovery that recent um, thing that the IARC came out and declared it was a potential carcinogen because uh, there's a lot of money being made out of it. Yeah, of course. And just to return to your question about grains, I think that the real issue is is in the toxicity mm. of, uh, of our lifestyles in general and the impact that toxicity is having on our immune system and that's via the gut, the gut and also via the lymphatic system and anything that's involved in removing toxins from our body. And I think that the problem begins with, with our human lifestyle, our current lifestyle, uh, more than it, that, it's got, that it's related to grains and crops that we've actually been eating for thousands, tens of thousands of years in some cases because humans, the, the great... What's fascinating about gut bacteria is that gut bacteria actually helps us develop the ability to digest things. Yes. So, yeah, and so we've had this symbiotic relation with gut bacteria for, you know, millions of years, you know, ever since we had guts, I guess. And so over time, you know, bacteria turns over very quickly. It's gen it adapts genetically very quickly because it's very... Um, because it has such short life cycles, so its evolution is much faster than humans. And what happens is that um, that bacteria will work with us according to what we, how we nurture it and what we feed it with. It works with us to help us digest. And I do think it's fascinating. There's quite a bit of research out there into the whole grain and obviously particularly the wheat issue. And um, there's a fellow called um, Moses Velasquez uh, Manoff, and he's written some fascinating articles about uh, the rise in allergies related to our, our fear of bacteria, you know, our whole kind of antibacterial stance that society's taken on in the last 50-odd years. Yes. And he talks about studies that have been done between, say, a part of uh, Russia, an isolated part of Russia, and um, I think it's Finland that's right next door to Russia, and the Finnish are much more developed. And there's a higher percentage of celiac disease amongst the Finns than there is amongst the Russians, who are separated simply by 
you know, a notional border created by humans. Yeah. Same, very similar genetic population, obviously. Um, and it's, and I, I really suspect that it's got a huge amount to do with that we're under immune attack, let's say, you know, our bodies are, our immune systems under attack in the modern world. Yeah. And I think that that's the issue. Grains are, um, the other thing, of course, too, is that grains are, you know, difficult to digest proteins, but humans have dealt with that over thousands of years by fermenting them and, um, you know, dealing with them in particular ways so that they are partly digested before they actually even enter our mouths. And um, sourdough bread is a perfect example of that mm. because a lot of people, um, I, you know, we work with bakers. I know bakers who say to me, mm, I just make this miche and I even have celiac, people with celiac who can eat this miche. Yeah. And there have been studies that do show that people with celiac can eat um, sourdough. I mean, obviously, yeah. you know, I'm not advocating that celiacs <laughs> no, run out and celiacs. Celiacs. <laughs> No, please don't. However, um, there are indications that what's at issue, it's not that wheat is evil or that mm. gluten is evil or that grains are a problem for us. I think it's got a lot to do with our modern lifestyle. Absolutely. And you know what? It's not, it's not just grains. Like if your gut is messed up, you're going to have an immune response to a whole range of different foods. Yeah, that's absolutely true. You're yeah. so right. I um I've spoken about this before on the podcast, but I my gut was messed up probably about two years ago, and I went through quite an intensive process to repair it. But a side effect of that was that my immune response to a lot of allergens was really, really, really high. Mm. And it was only once I managed to heal my gut and abstain from those foods for a lengthy period of time, probably about three months, that I was able to introduce all of them back into my diet without, without any issues. That's fascinating. Mm. So what was that process that you went through? Um, God, it was horrible. <laughs> 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 no, it wasn't. It's a. It's called the GAPS diet. Oh, um, yes. You've yeah. probably heard of it, yeah. Um, and I did the introductory diet for 10 weeks, so I was surviving on bone broth and vegetables. <laughs> oh, gosh. Okay. Yes. And I black would... coffee. I think the black, black coffee got coffee. me through. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. So you're obviously someone who can metabolize caffeine. Yeah, I mean, look, they say that there's no sort of immune response to the caffeine. It's only when you start adding, you know, dairy or nut milk or soy even yeah, um, yep, yep, that yep. you have an issue. So, yeah, that was the only kind of <laughs> vice I was allowed. But, yeah, oh. God, it made such a difference. I recommend it to anybody who's suffering with gut issues. So you couldn't even have chocolate? No, no, couldn't have chocolate. <laughs> couldn't have anything. Um, I was allowed little bits of avocado in the I think in the third week um, and some coconut yogurt as oh, well yeah I can say from personal experience as a cook that I've definitely noticed the difference between an organic and a non-organic flour in particular when I'm cooking with it um, and not just the taste but the way that it performs and its texture yeah, we get, as I said, I'm not a great baker, uh, but I do enjoy, you know, throwing together the odd cake every so often. Mm. However, yeah, a lot of people who are bakers and who bake all the time and, as you say, you do recipe development and I think that in itself 
shows that you know what you're talking about uh, because anyone who does recipe development has to be able to go, oh, okay, no, it shouldn't have done this, should have done that. Yeah. And I think that that's when it, you know, it's the art and the science of baking. And anyone who's involved in that say, say to us that they notice organic flour performs better. But what's interesting is it's entirely anecdotal, you know. I mean, how are you going to test that? And it, I... <laughs> It's part of that thing called anecdata, you know, that great thing about if enough people say it to you, it must be true. I love this feature of the Kayala products is the farm-to-plate tracking feature. Yeah. And I think it goes back to that, um, you know, concept of conscious eating that we were talking about at the beginning um, and being able to sort of track where your product is coming from and a little bit about the farm and the farmer themselves. Yeah, well, that, that's where we, um, Quentin, my brother, who's, who, um, whose company it is, and I, because we grew up in the country, we grew up in a, in a um, with a, a farming, or well, we had sheep and cattle, so it was different, but we grew up in this country lifestyle and there's very much this sense of a divide between the country and the city in Australia probably not just in Australia, but there is that was something that we really noticed as kids. And one of the inspirations behind the tracker is that we wanted to connect the farmer to the person who's eating the food because, you know, we've all heard the we've all heard anecdotes about kids who, you know, think milk comes in bottles and all of that kind of stuff. And so it in some way I, I kind of conceived that it should not only tell people this is the farmer, but it should also be a way that we could educate people and, and specifically school kids because they seem to love it. This thing about, well, this is how you grow crops and you add this and you do that and you do this this time of year and rah, rah. And I'm the kind of person, as you can tell, gets really bogged down in details. <laughs> <laughs> and oh, I could wrap it on forever about, oh, do this, do that. However, obviously, you know, not everyone's got the time or the interest. I, but I think it's important to offer people that information if they're interested, and also to personalise their products so that they can, you know, see the person who grew the grain and get a little sense of their character because I think there is, you know, there's it, it, just a real, there's a, a quality amongst um, country people, farmers, that, that, that I think is so valuable for us to recognise and it's this sense of, you know, they're just grounded, you know. They, they kind of, they're not, they've got their, very literally they've got their feet on the ground, but it gives them a, just a real sense of, of what's important and what's practical and, and um, it's a very different lifestyle. So it does create a, a particular character and I just really love that we can give people a taste of that in some way and, and help them feel that, they are a bit more connected to where their food comes from. Yeah, and I think that I think people, um, you know, it's it's sort of becoming a trend in the restaurant and cafe industry. But we kind of feel a little bit disconnected when it comes to our pantry products because you know it does seem like a really kind of long chain before it arrives in your home. It, yeah, exactly, and yeah. that's why when we thought about it, we thought, well, hang on a minute. Um, that we're, it's not actually the chain's not that long between um, we're we're dealing directly with farmers 
and then we do our mill stuff and we're pretty, you know, on our website we have virtual tours of the mill and stuff. So we, we just think transparency should exist all the way through the food chain. So we're transparent about what we do at the mill and then we just pack it in bags and then it goes and sits on the shelf in the, in the shop and then you buy it and you bake it. So there's really only, you know, one, two, three steps before it gets to you and I, I think that that's really, um, you know, that, that's great because so many foods, particularly when it comes to processed foods, who knows what they've gone through? And any food, you know, we've all heard the food, don't eat any, the, ad, that, that thing about don't eat anything in a packet mm. and grains come in packets. So it's like, okay, well, let's examine this a little bit and, say, and see that, you know, obviously you can grind your own grains but you're going to have to get your wheat from somewhere and that's cool. We supply wheat. But the thing is that you can see what's gone the reason why it's good not to eat things in packets is because you can't see what's gone into it yeah so we go hang on we'll show you what's gone into it it's pretty simple it's as close as you can get to just growing your own wheat (laughs) yeah I love that and I, I also love that it's individualized to that particular packet of flour you yeah. Know, like just so everybody knows who's listening, basically what you do is you find a batch number on your product and then you enter it onto the site, right? And it Yeah, on the website you yeah. go to, you can go there's a you can use a QR code or you just punch in the, the URL and and then you just enter the first four digits of the batch number and um, it will then take you to the farmer or the multiple farmers because in cert- with certain um, uh, grains, particularly wheat we will tend to make batches together, um, but a lot of other um, things like chickpeas or you know mung beans or maize are grown by single farmers, and uh, and so you can see the farmer. We don't have videos for all of them yet. We're working towards that, but we try to have photos of um, the farmer, and if they're a bit camera shy, we get photos of their least photos of their farm, and um, and little stories about them and some of them are great characters and they're really they're really passionate about organics what do you think are some of the maybe i don't want to say forgotten because they're not forgotten but the the less popular grains that you think people could be using more of oh yeah that's a good one um millet actually Mm. uh millet is very ancient and and has been we even have indigenous Australian forms of millet, but I don't think that we're actually eating them, and I don't know if Aboriginal people ate them. But millet is so common; it's grown all over the world, and obviously it's huge in Africa, um, very staple grain in Africa, uh, and it's actually apparently I haven't tried this myself, but apparently it works as quite a good substitute for wheat flour in even in baking goods. Ah. It's got a different flavour, but it's not too strong. It's not like quinoa flour. Quinoa flour has got a very distinct Ooh, Yeah. <laughs> it's very bitter, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I think it's got those things the um sap saponins. Yeah. yeah, I think. And and they do try to wash them off the quinoa, but there's always a little bit of a of a remnant of them. So millet is something I think that's quite underrated. And uh, um, what else? There's a, gosh, off the top of my head, I'm trying to think about. Oh, all sorry, the- I put you on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
Um, but buckwheat, I think but I've been using a lot of buckwheat flour in cakes and I love the taste yeah, of buckwheat. I love the taste of buckwheat. Your buckwheat's actually really nice. It's a very um a light buckwheat. Oh, like, okay. Okay. There's, there's a buckwheat flour. I can't remember who makes it. Um but there's a there's a few people that make it and it's very um dark and grainy and I think if people were to try that buckwheat for the first time they probably would never try buckwheat ever again oh <laughs> mm. but it's um but yeah no your your flavor is very kind of subtle and nutty and delish oh that's interesting um I can't say I've ever tried any other form of buckwheat flour no why would you <laughs> um, and I wonder if there might be different um, varieties of buckwheat and that might have something to do with it yeah and I think it also comes down to the milling process maybe it seems quite kind of oh god I'm I'm talking like an amateur because I actually have no idea but quite kind of husky still like there's ah uh, yes that, does that sound right it yeah it does sound right because buckwheat comes with this dark you know how you can uh, the hulled and the unhulled. Yeah, and maybe it's unhulled. Yeah, and it might. I know that we do mill some of the hulls in the buckwheat because it can it it can be quite hard to dehull as a as a grain. It's yeah. harder than other grains to dehull. Um, so that's interesting to hear you say that. I might have to investigate that. I'll have to go and ask some questions at the mill. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> do. Um, and, and the other one, yeah. Oh, sorry, I just very no, quickly okay. say the other one. I think um, um, just as an ancient grain um, is kamut. Yes, and kamut's interesting because I'm not. You probably know, but Khorasan and kamut are the same species. But um, Khorasan kamut is like a, a, um, a proprietal name to a very specific seed variety that's been. Um, carefully bred or carefully cultivated in the US and there's a whole lot of health benefits. They've done a huge amount of study into Kamut and, and there's all of this stuff about how it's it, – it, a lot of Khorasan is actually crossbred with uh, with wheats. It is a type of wheat but it's crossbred with other types of wheat. But Kamut is pure and um, we just recently got the license to for Kamut in Australia. So Kamut is something that I'm pretty excited about getting hold of some and being able to play with. I'm not sure um, what it's going to be best for, whether it's probably something that's going to make great bread, I imagine, and maybe good pizza bases and stuff. But I'm hoping I might be able to bake with it because I love baking with spelt flour. Oh, me too. Kamut so, still has gluten in it, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Uh, it ha I'm not sure how much gluten, but like, it's like spelt. You know, so it's it is a wheat. Lower. Lower yeah, gluten. it's it's a type of a wheat grain, and I think when it comes down to that gluten thing, uh, that it's really about the fact that it's an ancient grain, as opposed to a hybrid grain. Mm. So there is a lot of stuff around that, and I, I, I you know, I've spoken to wheat growers, uh, sorry, wheat breeders, uh, a wheat breeding fellow who said to me that you know they they're doing all this research into the proteins in gluten and, of course, with the celiac thing. And there's not a lot of, um, you know, there's so many proteins that make up the wheat, uh, the, the, the general wheat um, grain itself, that it's really hard to isolate them. And perhaps there is something in 
this idea that the ancient grains are more simple. Um, they've not been sort of tampered with for specific characteristics like wheat has been, has been deliberately uh, cultivated to create certain types of bread, for example, for the, for the way that we now bake bread in the modern world, which is like, you know, the bread in the plastic bag type bread. We're not talking about artisan sourdough yeah. bread. And so there are certain characteristics that, that manufactured bread needs to be like, and then they grow wheat varieties that, that actually match those characteristics. Whereas something like spelt is hard to, um, spelt is hard to breed because it's a hulled grain blah, blah, I don't need to go into too much detail there. But what that means is that wheat has lent itself over thousands of years to being tweaked and, and tampered with by humans, whereas other ancient grains, um, wheat-type wheat, wheat type grains like spelt, uh, like kumut, haven't been. Um, and so now that fo the focus on those ancient grains is really much more about their own particular qualities and characteristics rather than trying to make them better for human manufacture that makes sense yeah yeah so I think that's got something to do with um, why a lot of people who can't tolerate wheat can tolerate spelt and that kind of thing yeah I've got to I, I actually I've never um, I've never cooked with kamut before the only time I've eaten it even is in a um, like a sprouted bread yeah, exactly. I know yeah. the one you mean. Yeah, because yeah, that's yeah. the same with me. So I'm, I'm really much, very much looking forward to, to see what Hang it's around like. With it. Yeah, yeah. I'll have to get some to you, and you have, you can have a play with it. Yeah. Did you, did you send me some? Maybe. No, we no. we haven't harvested the. First, I think I might have sent you coruscant. Ah, did that's right. I didn't know yeah. what to do with that either. Okay, I'm, well, do you bake bread? Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, I would try it in bread. Okay. I think it's a good bread baking flour yeah and i would mix it with other types of flour in um perhaps more solid baked goods like uh you know what are some of the things that you make for example like muffins yeah um, i'd try it in muffins yeah it, like banana breads that sort of yeah. stuff yeah give it a go in that yeah and to see what sort of what what its qualities lend to those kind of products uh, and, and I, I think the kamut will perform in a very similar way to the Khorasan, but it's just a pure, it's a more, it's a more um, pure form of the breed. Uh, and, and there's a lot of research that the kamut people have done into the, uh, the health benefits and the nutritional benefits of kamut. But we not, uh, we've only just planted it. It was only just planted uh, all our kamut farmers have only just planted it back in sort of May this year and it will harvest in uh, October, November. We're oh, expecting okay. our first crop. Yeah. And the, just a little bit of the sort of timeline of production, once you harvest a grain, how long until it's milled? Is it like that day or? No, what generally happens, okay, the grain gets harvested, it gets loaded on a truck and then depending on what storage um, arrangements there are you know the farmer might store it or it might go straight to the mill where it's stored in the silos and it can be stored you know grains I mean obviously they found grains that clearly aren't that fresh but in the tomb of Tutankhamun you know they found spelt grains and stuff oh, wow. so yeah grain will it's a seed so yeah last um, it will last for a very long period of time so it's quite safe to store a whole 
wheat grain or a whole spelt grain or, you know, whole chickpeas or whatever for periods of time. And, um, you know, they might get, it might get stored up to three, four months, depending on what the demand is and the milling turnover. And um, what will happen is that uh, in that time when it's in the silo, we, um, to prevent pests, getting into it, we will use CO2 gas, so carbon dioxide gas that then dissipates in the air, but it will kill any um, any eggs or bugs that are, that are actually living in the grain, whereas conventional mills will use, obviously they'll use pesticides to do that while they store the grain. So it will live there in the silo, and then when it's time to be milled, it'll be conditioned, which means it's kind of soaked a little bit with water, not like for in the way that people soak grains to sprout them, yeah. But um, it will be wet. It will be wetened. <laughs> what a better word. <laughs> yeah. And I'm not quite sure how long that conditioning process takes, but that helps the milling process. Okay. And um, it's not something that happens to all of the grains, but only to some of the grass. It's sort of more for the grass grains like wheat and barley and rye and spelt. And then, uh, and then that. That has some effect. I think it actually helps to break the hull of the grain more easily. And then once the hull is broken, that's when the freshness of the grain, uh, you know, th- that's when the potential then enters for the freshness to be compromised. So you want to reduce the amount of time from the milling to popping it in a in the packet and, you know, vacuum sealing it and then getting it onto shelves. So that there's always a use-by date that's about six months after the milling date, I believe. And that's, we always say to people, keep it in a cool, dry um, space, refrigeration if you're in a hot yes. climate. Okay, so that was my next question. Like, how do I stop the weevils getting in my flower? <laughs> okay, yeah, and that's a big challenge. Yeah. But the best way to do it is keep it in the fridge. Ah, okay. In an airtight container. Okay, so yeah, airtight, so you don't get the moisture in there. Yeah, exactly, because we have dry, um, we have big cold storage area that's very, you know, completely dry and the idea being that if you, I think it's six degrees is the optimum, um, keep it below six degrees and the, no, the eggs can't reproduce and so, you know, you may be eating eggs but it's all protein. <laughs> that's what I'd say. <laughs> it's not going to like that. <laughs> It's the reality. Sorry, either that or you buy grains full of pesticides. That's your yeah, fault. exactly. Ah, oh, I was just talking to someone. Oh, it was um, it was Kate Dalton. I did a podcast with her last week about her teas. Um, she grows. She doesn't grow them. Sorry. She she blends herbal teas, and all of her herbs are organic and wild crafted. And she said, you know, part of that is that you may find a bug on it every now and then. I love it when I find bugs on my lettuce. I'm going like, woo! (laughs) Yeah. Well, if they can eat it, we can eat it. Well, that's right. I mean, insects, it's fascinating. There is this phenomenon in the States now, cricket flower. I don't know that I want to go there. But (laughs) I actually had a guy send me a packet of cricket flower. And how was that? Well, look, it doesn't perform very well because (laughs) it's cricket (laughs) you know like it might be high in protein and great but you can't bake bread with it right so what do you do with it i don't know like maybe add it to muffins with some other kind of flour does it have a distinctive flavor um no not really when i was in mexico i ate grasshoppers oh yeah like you know just whole grasshoppers they deep fry them 
bit yeah. of chili. <laughs> I haven't done that yet, but I, I'm I'm open to it. Definitely. I, I, you know, insects are sort of a bit creepy, but I guess we really have, you know, there's a lot of people who argue we have to get over our squeamishness about eating insects because they are the most prolific species. And really, is it any different to eating any other animal? Well, yeah, I know. It's just that crunchy quality. That's (laughs) (laughs) That's true. Um, Just one more question about the storage of grains. If you have a packet of flour in your cupboard, you haven't put it in your fridge... What do you think the shelf life is on it? Uh, well, it will still be okay to the use whatever the use by date is on the packet. I mean, I you know I'm the kind of person who always uses things past their use by date, and they're usually fine. Yeah. Um, I think it depends on. Basically, bugs love warmer climates, and if you've got you know if your pantry is somewhere near your stove, or you know if there's some way that you can get heat. In, if the pantry's getting warm, then that's not a good environment. Um, it will encourage yeah. eggs to, to grow. Okay. So that's probably the bottom line. You know, use it by the use by date. But even if you use it by the use by date, and it, it can still, it certainly can still grow weevils because weevils are disconnected yes. with freshness. Yeah. Um, and they will be a result of too much warmth and mm. moisture. So also that's the other thing, you know, once you've opened the packet, always store it in an airtight container. Don't like, you know, just kind of crumple the bag up and stick it back in the cupboard. Yeah. Yes. yes. Uh, <laughs> I say that. I say that with a guilty conscience. <laughs> oh, all right. Thank you so much, Sheridan. This has actually been a lot more fascinating than I had predicted it to be. <laughs> no, honestly. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. When I told I, I told my brother Quentin that I was going to be talking to you and we we're going to be talking about soil health, he went, "Oh yeah, oh, yeah. That sounds exciting." <laughs> no, it is. It's fascinating because, like I said earlier, I think that we do think a lot about our food, but not so much about you know, yeah. like our our pantry items, our our packet products, because we're told not to, you know. Yeah, right. Don't think yeah, about. Don't think scary. about where it comes from. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, we're trying to we're trying to overcome that fear. Yeah, so. yeah. I think it's great. <laughs> um, if people want to find a little bit more about um, Kayala, what where should they go? Uh, our website, Kayala Pure Foods. Just Google it, um, yeah. and it's kayalafoods.com.au. That's K I A L L A, and um, visit us on Facebook. Yeah, and your the products. usual story. I mean, I'm quite familiar with your products, but I, I think it's because my like my corner store stocks them. Oh, really? Yeah, oh. it's a pretty amazing corner store. Yeah, but I've would I've seen it in health food stores as well. Yes, yeah. it, you will find it in a lot of organic shops uh, and IGAs. Ah, okay, great. Yeah, and if it's not there. Demand it. Demand it. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you so much for talking to me again. I really appreciate it. And um, have a beautiful rest of your day. Thank you, Jordana. It was a pleasure. If you enjoyed that episode, make sure you go and check out the show notes on the blog, theinspiredtable.com.au, or you could come and hang out with me on Instagram at theinspiredtable. Or if you're keen to hang out in the flesh and you're in Sydney, why don't you join me at the next Inspired Lunar Nights? For all the details, head to the events page, theinspiredtable.com.au forward slash events. I hope to see you there. Hold up. 
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.